Hey Migrantly family, this is Sadia Khan with another incredible episode. But before I dive in, I want to thank someone, our new patron on Patreon. Her name is Marianne Anger. Thank you so much for subscribing, for believing in Immigrantly, for paying attention, for being an ally to Immigrantly. It means a lot and your contribution will help us sustain the podcast. Now, those of you who haven't still subscribed or checked our Patreon, please do. It helps us sustain the podcast and it's your platform, right? So I'm sure you'll be fine giving up on one cup of Starbucks coffee. Anyways, There's a lot that we have to cover today, so we'll get right into it. First, I want to share something with all of you. This month, Immigrantly is partnering with the NHL again, yes, again, to celebrate and showcase South Asian culture through hockey. That's right. We are entering the arena and doing a live podcast at the New Jersey Devils game against the Winnipeg Jets. Many will attend, including South Asian artists, business leaders, broadcasters, and New Jersey Devils athletes. I am so excited about the event and I will be interviewing Sue Bhatia. She's a young actor, drummer, rapper, stage performer. She's done so much at such young age and I'm so excited to interview her. But I'll be honest with all of you. I'm always honest, right? I'm a bit nervous. This is my first live podcast event. So wish me luck. By the time this interview releases, the event would have already taken place. I am really hoping that we can share the audio on our streaming platforms as a regular episode. But if acoustics and sound quality doesn't allow, then we may share it on our Patreon only. This may be a good time to subscribe to our Patreon if you want to listen to my first live podcast event. Anyways, there's something else that I want to talk about. Now, during Black History Month, we will be re-releasing an episode which is an important conversation around the impact of African cuisine on American culture and food. I sat down with Stephen Satterfield almost six months ago to have this conversation and I was blown away. And while I'm excited to reshare this with our new listeners, In honor of Black History Month, I also want to say that we should celebrate Black history beyond a particular month. If we want to live out our democratic values, such awareness and action has to happen beyond specific timeframes. So let's hold each other accountable and keep the momentum going. And now to our guest for today's show. Her name is Mika Cooper Edwards and she is the founder and CEO of Soleil Space and Soleil Entertainment. By the way, during our conversation, I compared Soleil to Netflix and Mika was like, no, 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 no. 
Silly is more interactive, it's more inclusive and representative of different ethnicities and backgrounds. At the core, Mika is a visionary entrepreneur. Her expertise span over 15 years in media and across many markets. She's led international campaigns for iconic brands like Nike, Jordan and PepsiCo, as well as social impact efforts and corporate partnerships for Netflix and HBO documentaries. Wow. I mean, she's achieved so much and done so much as an independent producer in Hollywood and a native of Trinidad and Tobago, Mika felt the weight of underrepresentation, and that's how Soleil came about. Now, according to their website, Soleil is a transcultural media company focused on elevating stories and creators of the global south. And I love that. Since she's expanded Soleil into a multimedia space with a podcast, a newsletter and a streaming platform, which, by the way, launched a couple of weeks ago. And I really recommend everybody to check it out. Subscribe if you can, or at least try their free trial for 30 days. Mika was recently named as 2021 Forbes Next thousand an esteemed list of upstart entrepreneurs redefining the american dream isn't that incredible she is lived a fascinating personal and professional life and our conversation was so good we talked about her journey from her experience in corporate culture to growing up in the caribbean to the meaning of transculturalism so let's get started I am so excited to have you here. So nice to meet you. Thanks for your patience. <laughs> and just for our listeners, Mika and I had some technical issues in the morning, like just before recording started, Mika was trying to charge her headphones. Oh, you sold me out. <laughs> yes. And by the way, I'm using a new mic. So if I sound weird, it's all because of the mic. And if I sound nice, then I made the right choice. How about that? Well, you did. You sound great. Thank you, Mika. <laughs> and you know what? I was looking at your resume and reading about you. You've done so much. It was almost impossible for me to pick one thing and start. And I was like, you know what? I'll ask Mika to share her story. So take us back. You were born in Trinidad and Tobago, right? Yeah. So I was born in East Trinidad, um, a town called Arima. And that matters. What part of Trinidad you're from really matters. And I like to boast that I'm an East girl. When you said that you're glad that you are East Trinidadian. You said that there's a difference. I am curious to know what does that mean? So generally, you know, if you're from the north, like Port of Spain area, Port of Spain is where our capital is. And so there's a culture of, oh, here's where everything happens in Port of Spain, which I think is a, probably the case in a lot of places, right? Whereas the east, we are more of a bit more of a mix of city and country. And because we're in the East, 
there's a whole lifestyle of commuting into the city and then on weekends it's almost like you're exposed to two different worlds all the time it's like you're living between two worlds you know a lot of us we experience a certain type of uh culture that is a lot more grounded a little more humble you know and then we go to school in the city and we're exposed to a whole different type of subculture in Trinidad so that's why I said the Easters we're cool you know (laughs) I was born to a mother who's a teacher um, by trade a father who's an engineer Hmm. my parents divorced when I was three so he was in our lives quite a bit but he wasn't in the home right so it was this all-female home which I think just made me a natural feminist from the very beginning. (laughs) The first time I moved to the U.S. was when I was um, going to college, actually. Mm. It was the first time I'd been to America. I went to Howard University in Washington, D.C. and studied international business, marketing, played volleyball there. Um, And then out of college, moved to Oregon. Why Oregon? Yeah, Nike's headquarters is in Oregon. So that's the only thing that would take somebody like me to Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, well, Portland wasn't that cool hip, hipster city. It was pretty, you know, pretty vanilla. <laughs> Do you think it has changed now, though? I feel it's still pretty vanilla. Yeah, I think it's much more diverse. And I mean diversity in all ways, like not just ethnicity. I mean, things to do and different cultural influences coming together and different people from different backgrounds, Mm. even career wise. Right. Like, you know, at the time, there were just a few big companies that people worked at and then everything else was just orbiting around that. It was vanilla in a lot of ways. The weather was terrible, (laughs) (laughs) you know, which matters for somebody who grew up in the sun. That's a big deal. So I did that and I was at Nike, well, total for seven years, including internships that I had done. I had started working at Nike when I was in college. So I did summer internships and then I was doing work for Jordan Brand while I was in my senior year. So my total experience spanned seven years with the company, but full time went out to Oregon for five years and then went back to Trinidad and worked in corporate Trinidad for a while. Why did you go back to Trinidad? When I got to Trinidad, so many people asked me, why, why did you come back? I'm like, because this is home. But no, what happened is um, the global economic crisis had hit. Uh, this was to the 2008 crisis. And at Nike, they were doing this big reorganization. Fortunately, in the reorg, what they would do is say, hey, we're putting you into this role. Mm. And if you don't take the role, then we give you a severance package. That coincided with a time for me where I was feeling increasingly isolated and it was very difficult being away from everybody. All my friends were on the East Coast. Most of my family was either on the East Coast of the U.S. or in the U.K. or in Trinidad. I was so far removed from everything. And it took a toll being so young. And your work was your family, which was really great. But whenever work wasn't good, there was no way to really escape that. At the same time, my father, who has a steel pan manufacturing and export company, He had been lobbying for a while for me to come back home and work in the business. And it's about legacy and everything just kind of converged at the right time. 
And the role that they were offering me at Nike was very um, US centered. And I was in a job that was leading global footwear for Brand Jordan. So I was on a plane all the time. I was traveling. I was meeting and working with people all over the world. And I loved working on the regions outside of the US because to me, that's where all the innovation and all of the cultural action was happening. I didn't have to be grounded in Oregon in the rain all the time. Right. So basically, it didn't fit into my worldview or my experience that I wanted. And that was my opportunity to go back home. So you go back home, you work with your dad, but then you come back to the U.S. Well, I didn't come back right away. I worked with my dad. Then I actually did some corporate marketing roles in Trinidad. And then I felt like I had run the gamut of... Working at the big principal, you know, multinational corporation, I didn't feel like there was much for me to learn in commercial marketing anymore. And I had been obsessing over stories a lot and media and what was happening. And I'd always felt as just a person that loved film that, you know, where's our story? Where's, you know, why are we always like the housekeeper with the funny accent that people laugh at? Right. I just got tired of seeing that and I started obsessing over it. And I had always wanted to go back to school and study something different. And you studied media. Yeah, that's what took me to London from Trinidad. So I didn't come back to the U.S. until after I finished my master's in media. And I studied global media and I studied all these realms of global film outside of Hollywood that I had no idea about. So it just opened up my whole world. And that's really where the idea for Soleil, my company, was born. So after London, we went back to the U.S. It was a kind of full circle, strange type of experience. Mika, what year was that? That was 2017. So this was right after Trump's election. Correct. And Brexit. And a lot of things were happening. So my husband and I, we both quit our careers and decided we wanted to go back to school. And so we were weighing all these different offers. And I had an offer to go to actually to Columbia Film School. And he was weighing an offer in New York and an offer on the West Coast in California. And then we had the two London offers. So the the two Londons were the, you know, things that we were like, oh, let's go to London. We accepted And then the next week, Brexit happened. Oh, wow. And then when we got there, Trump got voted in. (laughs) It was crazy. crazy, right? (laughs) It was crazy time for all of us. Mika, we've talked so much about your experience within the corporate culture, right? Fashion industry, food companies, you talked about Nike, you've even worked for Crafts. And a lot of times when I think of these organizations, I think of how all of them are for profit and therefore representation is not what representation should look like. And there's a lot of performative aspect of representation. And I wanted to get your opinion on what was it like navigating that space and what did you see in terms of representation initiatives that were happening or lacking within these spaces? I think Nike might have been the best example to illustrate, you know, which is very American in its identity, right? That trickles down. In my mind, America is a paradox because on one hand, you have the promise and you have the possibility. 
And then on the other hand, you have the broken promises and the shut out possibilities mm. to certain people. And those live side by side constantly. And there's always a trade-off between the two for us. And so one of the, those trade-offs is when you end up in that very corporate America, white dominant space. But Nike was interesting because Nike's consumer base were put in certain categories. So I, when I first went into Nike, I was working for Nike basketball, right? Black consumer base primarily and other minorities as well because it was urban culture, right? Brand Jordan was defining urban culture, urban fashion. Jordans were it to have, right? And so I'm living in Portland, working with predominantly white people. And then I have to kind of be a voice for all these consumers that they have no idea about, that they don't get the culture on a deeper level, right? And so that used to be a bit of a struggle for me. But what I would say is that the company, there was a pursuit of the understanding. Mm -hmm. It wasn't perfect in a lot of ways. Um, even just being out there and being, you know, this young black 20 something year old with this accent, that was a struggle in itself. So it was all these different layers and you, you're just constantly having to navigate that and balance that in your mind and kind of stay centered in who you are and not get too lost in it. There were times where it was very, very difficult, but there were times where it was just very empowering because once I proved my talent, I was trusted as that voice and I was able to open doors for other people, you know? And now you look at Nike now, it's much more diverse than what it was back in 2004, 2005. Hmm. Mika, you talk about how you felt you were unseen in Hollywood, mainstream media, all different institutions in the U.S. And that happens to a lot of us, right? The way narratives are constructed around our identities are so one-dimensional. And sometimes it seems to me that American media, mainstream media and film industry have already determined who's the villain and who's the hero. Mm -hmm. So they will dehumanize certain communities and people and then glorify others. Mm -hmm. And there isn't much you and I can do operating within that realm. And hence, your organization, your media company, Soleil, and my podcast, Immigrantly, were born. Mm -hmm. But there's something else I want to know. A lot of times people say that either we find our purpose or our purpose finds us. In your mm. case, did your purpose find you or did you find your purpose? I think it found me because if you speak to a lot of people who came up in the film industry, their story typically would be they went to film school, they always dreamed of being a writer or a director or an actor, you know, even producing is not something I think a lot of people grew up aspiring to do. And they worked their way up through the industry. I didn't have that experience. I came to this from an angle that I think was a deep-seated passion in me that transcended wherever, whatever realm I, I found myself in. And that's when I recognized that it was my purpose. It wasn't something that I had decided I was going after within a certain construct, mm. right? So I went to Howard and I, I wanted to study the world, international business. Why did I gravitate to that? 
at 19, 18, 19 years old, you don't really know, but you just know that's what you love, right? One of my early immigrant stories is getting to Howard University, which is an HBCU, very prominent black school, very historical. And all of these members of the black diaspora met at Howard. And I was really, really taken aback. There's this thing called a yard where everybody's just kind of, you know, it's like a fashion show. Everybody's like showing out, showing up. Who are the cute guys? Who are the cute girls? <laughs> Your freshman is like, you know, it's lit, right? And so this guy came up to me, cute guy. And he's like, um, oh, where are you from? I think he was from the Midwest. And I was like, you know, I'm from Trinidad. And he said, oh, uh, can you drive there from Jamaica? And I literally did a 180 and I, I, I was like, okay, bye. You know, it was a funny story, but I never forgot it because through all these interactions, I just realized how much, even within our Black diaspora, we don't know about each other. Yeah. And then when you when you extrapolate that out to other diasporas, right? Um, and growing up in Trinidad, we have many races and cultures that come together. So I'd always grown, grown up kind of with that awareness of like knowing about Chinese history and, you know, we were all immigrants at one point, but we all sound like me. So there was always this blending of culture. You know, I grew up celebrating Diwali and eating roti and that's my favorite food. And, you know, so I was just really taken aback by the segregation, not just from a socioeconomic standpoint that they talk about, but segregation of thought and of how we see ourselves and how we see each other. And so fast forward, that carried into my Nike experience where I end up working on the international businesses and I'm always advocating for them while I'm trying to say, you know, this athlete story needs to be told and give them more budget. And the regions always felt like I would kind of give them access to things that they weren't really supposed to get access to from a product standpoint, marketing, all of that. So I was always this kind of cultural ambassador in so many ways, and it just continued. But I felt like it found its sweet spot in what I'm doing now, because I realized that that is the root of a lot of what you just talked about, right? Like those terrible perceptions, where do we get them from? Where do we get these narrow-minded views of ourselves or of other people? So Mika, I want to expand this conversation a little and I want to go back to what you said. So you came to Harvard University, historically Black college. And I'm curious to know how your perception of race evolved having studied there because in America, race is perceived through a very different lens. In fact, everything is filtered through race. And other countries may have messed up in other ways, but they don't focus as much on race. And as you said, where you grew up, there were different races, ethnicities. I assume you never felt your race as much as you probably did in America. Can you speak a little bit about that? I have two minds when it comes to that. On one side, growing up in Trinidad, there's this beauty of the hybridity of the Trinidadian experience and the cultural exchange that happens and the 
appreciation of other cultures and, and how that all blends together to form this very unique Trinidadian identity. So that's beautiful. Mm. And that's something that I still appreciate and love about us. But it doesn't mean that some of those underlying race tensions are not there and they bubble up, especially every five years when there's an election or they rear their heads in different ways, but it's a lot more institutionalized. When I left Trinidad, I remember the day before we left to go to Howard, my father was like, because he had done his master's in Cleveland, Ohio, and he had said to me, all right, I think we need to have a talk. (laughs) He was like, when you go to America... You need to know that you're black. And I was like, well, yeah, of course I'm black. He was like, no, you need to know that you're black and you need to know what that means. And then he started to explain to me that that is how people see you and they treat you a certain way. Where in Trinidad, as a black person, you are one of the two majorities. And so I got to Howard and at first I was very, almost a little bit shocked or in, in not a good way that there was so much about blackness and everything was about being black and da, da, da. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a lot. This is militant and it feels exclusive. But then I was educated to the black experience and that also woke me up to what my missing history was as a black Trinidadian and that activism and how... Black Americans have been able to overcome, right? There are things that we have to learn from them and there are things that they could learn from us. I'll put it that way. Mm. And so when you ask about how did it change my perspective of race, on one hand, I gained an appreciation. I was privileged to grow up as a majority in my country. So you recognized your privilege. Yes, in that way. But I was also denied that understanding of my history all of the pain that happened, the civil rights struggle, and being able to recognize the institutionalized racism that mm. exists in Trinidad, right? So it, it, it's complex, right? Um, but I think going to Howard, it really was so enlightening and so empowering. And uh, that's one of, the, one of the reasons why I formed Soleil's, because I feel like there's so much we have to learn about each other, not just within the Black diaspora, between other ethnicities as well. Absolutely, Mika. And I want to extend this conversation to talk about your media company, Soleil. Now, what does Soleil mean? I'm so glad you asked that. So Soleil means sun in French. And sun was like a metaphor in a lot of ways for starting with my Caribbean identity and people of the global south in particular, you know, who lived close to or around the equator. There's a certain DNA when you grow up in the sun. Mm. And when you are even part of a diaspora, even if you live in the north, right, or in the west, your DNA is from the sun. I felt like it was like a symbol of connecting people of the global South diasporas and then bringing my Caribbean identity into it. Something else that really spoke to me as I was doing research about your organization, you're making this paradigm shift from multiculturalism to transculturalism, right? And to be honest, initially when I looked at it, I was like, ah, You know, it's just semantics. And I was like, I don't know why they're doing it. But then I went online and did some more research. And it made so much sense to me 
because transculturalism is honoring diaspora. It's honoring people who live outside American borders and within. Can you expand on the thought process behind that paradigm shift and how has that changed the way you approach representation? Mm-hmm. So one thing that had started to happen in the commercial space where this buzzword of multiculturalism was being thrown around everywhere and it really became a big black hole for everybody who wasn't white and male and straight. But I'll just back up a bit. Everybody who wasn't white at the time, I think, was was in this bucket of multiculturalism, right? And it really ignored a lot of nuance. Mm. It ignored those micro-identities. And to me, it made the problem even worse because what they did from there is they would cherry-pick from that bucket and decide, okay, who were the ones that we wanted to kind of be at the forefront And so there evolved, I'm speaking now more from the media standpoint, there evolved, okay, easily you could think Asia is two countries, China, well, East Asia, two countries, China and Japan. Forget Southeast Asia, Korea, and now Korea is a powerhouse, right? But like, you weren't seeing that, right? South Asia, all of South Asia is India. Forget Pakistan, Bangladesh, right? right? Forget all those places, right? In the Caribbean, Jamaica, where's Trinidad, where's Guyana, where's Barbados, right? And half the time, they never even got to those levels from a country standpoint. But then also from the ethnicity side, where you talk about what is the relationship to that home country, right? So when you break down the experience of a first-generation immigrant, a second-generation immigrant, someone who didn't immigrate and they identify with that dominant Western culture, but they are treated as minorities in in that culture and they're very disconnected from the place of their ancestry. And then somebody who just came fresh off the boat (laughs) or, or wherever, you know, and landed into America, the UK or Australia for the first time. Those are very, very different experiences, each of them. Absolutely. Can I say when we think of transculturalism, we are also honoring the ancestry or the geographic locations or the geography of the world? Definitely. The two are so connected, right? They can't really divorce one from the other. I always say this. Representation is not just somebody who looks like me on screen. It's also somebody who sounds like me. I'm so glad you said that because (laughs) I've always been so annoyed with this idea of representation being limited to one's physical attributes and how people look outwards, right? There is an accent that also represents people. There is mannerism that represents people. There is a thought process. There's religion. There is religion. The way I look at America is always going to be different and unique than the way my kids who are born and raised here look at America and American society, American pop culture. There is no way their and my experiences are the same. They're born here. And when we call them immigrants, then we are in a way saying that they are somehow different 
from other second generation European kids who were born here, right? right? Because a lot of times it goes back to how you look physically. Yes, because they don't tend to, when they show immigrants on television or on the news, you never see white people shown as immigrants. Yeah, and they are <laughs> immigrants. <know? laughs> and they're immigrants. So Mika, tell me, what do you see is the future of Soleil? And how do you see representation being rewritten within that context? Explain to me what true representation looks like through that lens. The future of Soleil is that we build a robust, independent media ecosystem. And so what we've been doing for the last five years is we've really been putting down all the building blocks for that to happen with the ultimate kind of apex being the community streaming platform that we launched last week. With the streaming platform, we're cracking into that frontier, which has been the most difficult not to crack in our industry, which is the financing and distribution of the content. Mm. Because the people, as a producer, I realized I went through those rigors. I went through the doors being closed to me, or even when they were open to me, people can trying to control my narrative, right? And trying to control it because they hold the power. And so being able to basically have that cog in the wheel for us is going to, you know, and just to say what the streaming platform is, it's dedicated exclusively to stories from people of color around the world and the whole cross section of that. And there's no platform that does that right now, right? In the subscription on demand space. The way I see it, this is Netflix, but focused on storytelling from the global south. Well, I don't like to compare it to Netflix because it's also a first in terms of even how the streaming experiences. So we're introducing a new model around streaming called community streaming, which means that there's this interactive experience where you get to connect with friends, you get to build your community around the content. Hmm. You get to recommend content to other people. The community is curating the content for the community. Filmmakers are visible, filmmakers are accessible. You could support them directly and you could interact with them. You could do watch parties with other people on the platform. So I reject the comparisons to Netflix because Netflix and the other big platforms are a one-way experience where the audience is hidden, the filmmakers are hidden, and there's no interaction and no community building. Mm. But Soleil Space is the first community streaming platform, and it's dedicated to people of color globally. So what does true representation mean to you? I think it starts with authenticity, and it starts with nuance as well. I think marrying those two will really give birth to so many stories that we don't get to see and that's where you end up with true representation there's no one truth and there's also no one experience being able to break things apart from an identity standpoint from a lived experience standpoint you know religion ethnicity um migration what you know what happens there heritage ancestry histories that haven't been told and or need to be retold (laughs) right 
when you think of all of that, think of the many stories that we have not seen and now we have the opportunity to see. And I think that's what true representation is. There's a quote from an author, a Nigerian author. Her name is Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She talked about the danger of the single story. Mm. It's not that stereotypes are untrue, but because they're the only story that's told, that's how they become a stereotype. Absolutely. That's how they become a lie about the majority of people that are funneled under this perception. And so I started my thesis with that quote, you know, um, and I kind of live by it as like that will be the ultimate manifestation of Soleil is when we have so many stories that it gives us a much more well-rounded understanding of people from different backgrounds and a better understanding of ourselves because when we don't have our stories told, how do we know what is true about us? That's true. Sometimes we start to self-loathe because of the stories that are being told to us about us mm -hmm. that are not true. Mm -hmm. Mika, in the end, if you were to define America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? America is a paradox. I like that. This was so good. Where can people find Soleil? How can they subscribe? Can you explain to us? Yes, you can go to soleilspace.com, S-O-L-E-I-L-S-P-A-C-E.com. That's our streaming platform. Um, it's not yet on mobile, but you could access it on your tablet or your desktop. The mobile version will be coming very soon. Our introductory trial is 30 days, so people could go, you set up a profile, you choose your favorite regions, and you could travel through the world of film. Our editorial website is soleilspace.com slash editorial. And so you could access a lot of other information and um, content from the company. Um, but the streaming platform is soleilspace.com. Thank you, Mika. This was so good. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you don't follow us on socials, our Twitter is at immigrantly underscore pod. Our Instagram is at immigrantly pod. You can check out our website, immigrantlypod.com. And here's the thing. We do have another podcast called Invisible Hate, which focuses on hate crimes perpetrated against minorities. We are so humbled by the overwhelming response to Invisible Hate. It is a collaboration with Refillion Media and Immigrantly is so proud to be part of it. So if you haven't listened to it, it comes out every Thursday. So you're listening to Immigrantly on Tuesday and then you can also start listening to Invisible Hate every Thursday. Give us feedback. As far as Immigrantly is concerned, guys, I want to know more about you, our listeners. I want to know what you like. I want to know what really resonates with you. So write to me, email me, ping me, DM me. I really want to know what your thoughts are. Immigrantly is part of your family. It's your space. It's your conversations. 
This episode was produced by me, Sadia Khan, written by Yudi Liu. Our editorial review was done by Shay Yu. Our editor is Hazik Ahmed Farid. Until next time, take care.